Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hazen. I am your host. And joining me on today's show, as always, is Luke Boggs. Luke, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy uh, Peach Pod New Year. Happy and Peach Pod New Year. Although, to be honest, this really just feels like the third installment in the uh, trilogy of 2020, the never-ending year that seems to just drag on and on and on with all the same crises we've been talking about. Yeah, I, I don't I don't love that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't love the fact that we seem to be perpetually in 2020, and uh, hopefully... You know, this year will be different. Well, on today's show, we are kicking off our content for 2022. We're also uh, recording on Saturday, a couple of days before the Georgia legislature is set to convene for legislative session. So we're going to talk today about what we expect for legislative session. And I think maybe most importantly, how we think Governor Kemp might drive legislative session. As we've talked about before, as you all are very aware Governor Kemp has a primary challenger from former Senator David Perdue, and that has pushed uh, Kemp to basically move himself to the right in any issue that he can, including what is likely to be his signature push of this legislative session, an effort to pass constitutional carry legislation, a big gun rights expansion, if he can get votes from Republicans for that. Then we're also going to talk about the the return to school for the spring semester for for students in Georgia and this issue that continues to i think eat at democrats both nationally in the at the federal level and in what states are doing both democrat and republican led states are doing in terms of keeping schools open and keeping them safe for students all while we are in the middle of a surge of covid cases from the omicron variant and then uh shifting our focus to washington uh President Biden and Vice President Harris are going to make a visit to Atlanta on Tuesday of this next week, and they're going to make a speech about uh, their efforts to pass voting rights legislation. But notably, some groups locally are pushing back on their visit, telling them to only show up if they have a plan to pass voting rights instead of platitudes that they've heard so far. But Luke, let's start here with some really important news in Georgia politics that that happened over the holiday break that we haven't gotten the chance to discuss yet. And that is that former Georgia Senator Johnny Isaacson passed away. Um, And his passing really marks the end of an era in Georgia politics, an era that we've talked a lot about, where Isaacson and, and other leaders like him were, you know, less polarizing, more interested in more interested in in working toward working across the aisle, working towards uh, policies and issues that would benefit our state. Um, so I just wanted to give you a chance here to start, Luke, to reflect on the passing of Senator Isaacson. It's hard to know even where to begin. Johnny Isaacson was a excellent you know senator. Again, as I always say with Johnny Isaacson, great great senator. Disagree with him on a lot of policy, but he did the nonpartisan parts of the job, which are a lot. Uh, you know, the constituent services, the coordinating with other members of the congressional delegation, both Democrats and Republicans. He, he did a lot of really uh, great things and was a leaguer in this state. And his absence has been felt and it was felt almost immediately after uh, he, he stopped being in the Senate. And, you know, I, I hate that he's not um, with us uh, now as well, because he probably was having a good influence behind the scenes in some ways, I'm sure, still even as his health was declining. So, I think one of the things that is going to be most notable is the fact that if Johnny Isaacson uh, had not passed away and his health had been good and he had decided to run for re-election, the Senate, you know, we, we'd be talking about him right now and what 
challengers might be shaping up against him and uh, what policies he were, you know, was pushing and how he was campaigning. And and I, I think it's interesting to compare what he might have been running on and talking about to what the reality will be. Because one, you know, we have Democratic incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock running for re-election uh, instead of Isaacson, which will, you know, obviously I, I prefer <laughs> prefer the policies and prefer the messages that he's pushing and the things that he wants to do. But it also opens up the Republicans to have Herschel Walker run and run a very, very different kind of campaign than a Republican Johnny Isaacson would. And I just think that's a grounding contrast that I'll be thinking about as we embark on this campaign and legislative season. And, you know, it's a, it's a shame that Isaacson uh, is gone because he was a, a good influence on the Republican party and it's going to be harder <laughs> to, to maintain democracy and decency without him. Yeah. That was the other thing that I thought was notable about, you know, Democrats and Republicans from the federal government and, and state politics gathered in Atlanta to memorialize Senator Isaacson, and they did so on January 6th, which is also the uh, one-year anniversary of the riots at the U.S. Capitol. And, you know, Johnny Isaacson, I think maybe first and foremost, was an institutionalist and and cared a lot about using the powers of government to advance policies that he believed in 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 sort of a productive way. And like you said, you know, I think on specific issues, there's a lot of Democrats that may – disagree on specifics, but I thought it was interesting to see some of the most effusive praise for Johnny Isaacson come from Stacey Abrams and Senator Warnock. Um, and it, it feels like, you know, his passing is not just the end of his life, but it is kind of the end of an era in Georgia politics where there was more of a bipartisan consensus and a more of a bipartisan commitment to, you know, some of the foundational tenets of our democracy. And, it is starting to feel like, as, as you look at what goes on in Washington, and, and we'll talk a little more about this later, it is starting to feel like Democrats are the only defenders of some of those values left in Washington, and their ability to pass legislation that would you know, solidify some of the foundations of our democracy really, I think, is you know maybe the most important task in front of them. Um, and if if they fail, um, can have really monumental consequences for what the future of this country is going to be. And on a slightly less dark note, another loss, I think, of Johnny Isaacson is that nonpartisan part of the job. I was talking about the you know advancement of Georgia's interests where, you know, Isaacson and Congressman John Barrow and other, uh, you know, folks who were in Congress a couple you know, years back now, I guess a lot later than I thought, but anyway, um, how they worked together on the Savannah port expansion during the Obama administration and that there were, there were projects that people could go across party lines and work on. And Isaacson was usually one of the people leading those. And, you know, we, uh, I'm sure it's possible, but I have not heard a lot about, you know, Senator Ossoff and Warnock working with, uh, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene or any of the other, uh, you know, Republicans in Congress now. I guess Rick Allen would be like a less controversial uh, a pick uh, for, for, you know, for someone they could be working with. But I, I think that's a, a difficulty that this new environment faces that, you know, I would hope that Isaacson would have been able to, to bridge. And maybe w- with time, they will be as well. 
Let's move on here and, and talk about how some of this polarization is going to play out on the state level during the state legislative session. And I think one of the key themes that I'm looking at as we enter the legislative session on Monday the 10th is it is clear from Governor Kemp's messaging as we head into session that he is going to prioritize some high-profile issues that are aimed at winning him favor among conservative Republican primary voters. And I think the most notable of these issues is his press to pass legislation that would allow the, the carry of concealed weapons without a permit in the state of Georgia. So currently, if you want to carry a gun in Georgia in public, you have to uh, register for a permit with a county office and pay a, about a $75 fee. And I believe you also have to undergo a background check that would eliminate those requirements and basically make it so that anyone who was legally allowed to own a gun could also carry that gun in public without the need for any kind of permit. Now, this is a policy proposal that Kemp backed during the 2018 primary. It was one of the biggest differentiators for him among Republican voters between Governor Kemp and and Casey Cagle, who he beat in that race. But Kemp has kind of let that issue languish in the legislature, and and maybe you know we talked about a lot of the fights that that Kemp has picked, um, but you know I think it's possible that at least on this issue, he was learning a little bit from the the trouble that Governor Deal had, when I think in successive sessions there was a push from the legislature to expand gun rights, allow guns on college campuses and in other public places, and I think initially Governor Deal vetoed a bill that would allow would have expanded the the number of places you could carry a gun and then ultimately was kind of pushed into signing, I think maybe a more narrow version. Um, but, but gun rights fights, Luke, in this state are some of the most divisive fights that we see in the legislature. Um, but what do you think about how that might play this time around, given, you know, I think Governor Kemp is looking for a lot of unified support from lawmakers uh, to help support his bid for re-election and help him beat David Perdue in that primary. Yeah, I think this is a pretty logical issue for Kemp to to pick because Kemp has never been a moderate politician. Kemp is not a moderate politician now. Like he's very conservative, which I don't think he would <laughs> disagree with me. <laughs> you know, characterizing him as very conservative. He wants and, to be. Yeah, it's like he wants to be that. And like he's always been that guy. And like he's always been. Maybe he'll be know, in his campaign ad. Right. You know, it's like he he ran in 2018 as the very conservative choice uh, who wasn't a wacko. You know, that's kind of, kind of how I feel like it was how he branded himself in comparison to some of the other people who were running to his right. And so with that in mind, I mean, this is a very logical issue for him to continue to campaign on. Because, again, you know, to Kemp's credit, he can't just like manufacture this position out of thin air like this is something he's talked about before and wanted to do uh and so i I think it makes sense for him to pick this issue up especially because while i'm sure they could pass other bills on abortion or uh elections they they kind of one you know they're in lawsuits (laughs) over both of those and probably don't want to be in more lawsuits but two it's just like they've kind of pushed those as far as you could and those are always heavy lifts those kinds of bills it's it's hard to even get all the republicans on board because those issues are so controversial you have some people who are concerned about 
taking a bunch of heat, but you also have Republicans who are like, this bill doesn't go far enough. And so I, I don't, I'm not surprised he's not opening up the can of worms that is elections or uh, abortion right now, and especially considering. Yeah, and just just to note, he in his some of his pre-session media has said that another abortion bill, like one potentially modeled after the Texas law or further election reforms, are not a priority for him. Which makes sense because I feel like he's tilled that ground as far as he can, and also. Uh, especially with the election bills, he would just be opening himself up or Purdue to attack him. Now, I think that actually this press, I think is one of the more dangerous proposals that he has backed. Um, you know, we are living in a time in our in our state and in our country where we've been, we're entering our, our third year of being in a pandemic that has radically shifted the way people live their lives and, and changed some of the most important sort of institutions and foundations in their own lives that they rely upon. Um, we are also in maybe the most unstable political environment that we've had in this country since the 1960s. And to me, you know, adding, and, and we can talk a little more about the specifics of this, but, but the broad effect that this would have is, is to reduce a barrier to gun ownership and a lot of the reason that some proponents of this say it needs to happen is that, you know, not that the permitting process stops someone from getting a gun. Like there are, there are other laws, federal laws and state laws that impact who is legally allowed to purchase a gun. But gun rights advocates will say that these permits are this cumbersome process that is just an unnecessary step that delays people's ability to get a gun but what that means is effectively you're going to make it easier for someone to get a to purchase a gun and then be able to carry it in public places and you're going to do that at a time of you know really significant instability in our state and in our country and i i thought it was notable you know the same day that i saw this news that governor kemp was backing this proposal the new york times uh, published some reporting that included reporting from atlanta that said that more children are dying from gunfire now in recent years than they had before. And this is comes from things like children finding guns unsecured in their own homes. You know, a child who finds a gun like that may, you know, shoot their sibling. And in fact, there's between 2015 and 2020, 123 kids in Georgia have either been killed or injured in unintentional shootings, shootings that were committed by other children, including like toddlers, like two, three, four, five-year-olds. You know, and a lot of this stems from people leaving guns unsecured in their homes, uh, from not using safe practices in the way that they own a gun. And so, you know, I think a lot of times, you know, we've been, uh, you know, we've done this too, kind of glossing over what the policy implications of something are to talk about the politics. But I think the policy here is sort of uniquely uh, dangerous in picking this time of any time to expand access to guns in Georgia. So as we mentioned, you know, the guns is going to be one of the bigger uh, issues that Kemp pushes in this legislative session that is aimed at, uh, you know, gaining, gaining support among base Republicans. He also has highlighted some issues that are less polarizing and, and I think are generally pretty good ideas of issues that he's going to push in this legislative session that includes completing his $5,000 uh, teacher pay raise proposal 
by giving the final $2,000 in this legislative session. Now, I think it's worth pausing to note here that the way state law works and the way the state budget works, the state can pass legislation in a budget that says teachers should get $5,000 in raises. But in many districts across the state, it is actually the school district that gets to decide whether that increased education funding is going to go to teacher pay raises or not. Um, so that is a an issue to keep an eye on. He's also proposed $5,000 pay raises for state employees who have not gotten raises in a very long time. And, um, you know, I think that's a pretty good idea. So there are some issues, Luke, where you could kind of see him preparing for a general election, preparing to try to rebut arguments that he's been sort of an irresponsible leader of the state by by taking care of some of the low-hanging fruit here. But again, we come back to this always. There are always examples of those things, but the thrust of his messaging seems to be around how he can uh, get Republican voters to win this primary. I'm finding it hard to think of anything to say because it's just like, to me, this is just like typical political behavior and this is what you do. And if you have issues that, again, to be fair, Kemp, like he's been pretty consistent that this is a thing he wants to do. So it's not like he just manufactured some, uh, you know, red meat political issue out of nowhere. It's like, he's talked about wanting to do this and you know, it's a time to do it. And there's almost so much political capital and so many red meat issues you can handle in a single session. And you know, he, he thinks this is the time to push this. And so that's what he's doing. So yeah, to me, this is just, you know, typical. I agree with you that I think it's bad policy and it's, it won't help any of the problems in Georgia and will just excite some elements of Kemp's base, you know, make it easier to do something. Most of them are probably already doing, um, but it won't make anyone safer and it won't, you know, help anything, uh, in, in on net. It'll just make life easier and have less licenses for a bunch of Kemp supporters or potential supporters to have. So to me, it's just, not surprising. So another issue where he, I think, has the ability to gather support from conservative voters, but an issue that is sort of spilling over into other parts of the electorate is how parents feel about schools, how they feel about their school districts during this pandemic. You know, Governor Kemp has uh, repeatedly touted that he is opposed to the teaching of critical race theory in Georgia schools, even though there's very little evidence that anything like that is actually being taught. And he said that he's going to pursue legislation that would ban that in this legislative session. But another uh, issue that wraps in uh, how people feel about schools is his desire to pass incentives for schools to stay in in-person instruction despite the fact that we are at a record high level of COVID cases with the Omicron variant, you know, making its way through our state and our country. Luke, I, I know you have some thoughts on sort of how both of these issues sort of create some vulnerability for Democrats um, and, you know, and, and what these could mean for the midterms, given that there is just a lot of long-term persistent frustration with the way um a lot of issues have been handled in schools over the last year, year and a half. Yeah. Well, the first thing I'll say is I think this is more of a national problem for Democrats than a local one. And that's primarily because of the fact that since Stacey Abrams has made no decisions about how Georgia schools are run and 
no Democrat is making, you know, statewide decisions on these topics. I, the vulnerability is is less threatening. But I think a a big reason why Terry McAuliffe had so much trouble in Virginia is on education issues, and it's not just the critical race theory thing. I think there's a distrust or frustration, or, you know, a combination of these different factors that are really on the top of mind for the electorate and around the country. And I think Republicans have just had a better time dealing with these frustrations because they're constantly pushing for what I think is ultimately on net the right position, which is that school should be open because, because in-person education is just far more effective and better for students than virtual education and virtual education has a lot of negative academic and intellectual issues that are pretty obvious to people but then there's less obvious effects like making people worse at socialization and not contributing to the emotional development of children in the same way as in-person education does and so people are very very frustrated by covid lockdowns and by just witnessing their students not learning as much or on pace as they should be and witnessing their children not learning on pace or, uh, you know, not developing in the way that they think they should be. And it's a pretty easy to blame the schools. And so part of the genius of the critical race theory argument is it contributes to this argument of you can't trust the schools because a lot of people are already thinking that. And so you kind of have, you know, you get to talk about this issue in a way that fires up your base, but also doesn't completely turn off more moderate voters because you can wrap in this other element of the shutdowns and not actually managing education very well. And so Democrats around the country have been in a very difficult position because they're not appearing very competent on these issues of how we're going to deal with the fact that we've had significant learning loss and virtual education for two and a half years has not been very successful. And so I think Kemp is being smart here by focusing on keeping the schools open because pretty much everybody wants that. Uh, you know, he could approach that in more responsible ways, but as far as a political position, uh, it's a, it's a smart one for him. Now this has become a really hot, discussion point across the country in the last few weeks as we get ready for as we get ready for students to start the spring semester um but i thought it was notable you know you're just hearing a lot of frustration from people about closed schools and you know governor kemp has said that this is going to be a legislative priority for him to pass incentives to keep schools open and you did see in Chicago public schools, the teachers union there voted to, um, you know, voted to not come back to school in person to basically keep those schools closed in person and, and stay virtual. And there was a lot of, you know, frustration at, at the way there was a lot of venting at, at teachers unions and, and teachers indirectly about their unwillingness to go back into the classroom um, amidst the Omicron variant surge, even though, you know, it's not entirely clear that everything is in place to be able to do that safely and consistently. Not not so much the same problems that we were talking about last year, where it was possible that teachers in vulnerable health could get severely ill, hospitalized, and, and die from COVID. You know, with vaccines, that is 
much less likely to be a possibility. But even if you end up with a mild infection, um, it is difficult with those symptoms to, to stand up and teach for eight hours. And then you run the risk of spreading these symptoms, even though they're maybe not deadly right now, spreading those symptoms to students and other staff. Um, but I was surprised to find Luke that there's this national conversation happening, but actually in most major Georgia school districts, almost all the ones around Metro Atlanta, the Clark County district where we are, they either, they either have already returned for in-person learning or are going to do that on, on Monday, January 10th. There was a group of districts that for the first week back to school last week did it virtual and in, in Rockdale County in the Metro Atlanta area and in Richmond County, which is the Augusta area, and then in Ware County in Southeast Georgia, um, those districts are closing at least some of their schools, if not their whole district, because of COVID cases there. But Luke, what do you think? I mean, it's clear. I don't, I don't think there's a lot of Democrats who believe that the right answer is virtual learning and that it's a no-brainer that we need to go back to that. But what else is missing here in terms of being able to return to school in person safely with the Omicron variant surging? Uh, the What's missing is action taken years ago to shut down the pandemic in a <laughs> realistic way. And, you know, there's other countries that aren't having nearly as hard of a time with this, uh, you know, and I, I, I think we've reached the point where with vaccination, with new treatments, with everything people are doing that long-term nationwide statewide shutdowns just are probably off the table for political and emotional reasons. And I just think without addressing that aspect straightforwardly, there's not going to be a good plan going forward because, um, well, let me prompt here. I mean, how how much of this is a problem of the Biden administration? Because, you know, people who wanted schools to open earlier have been consistent in saying and, and pointing to research that shows that school transmission, at least with prior variants, was not a major issue. And that for students, for, for younger people, there is less risk than there was for older people. You know, and then and then now when we have vaccines, a lot of that risk is mitigated for everyone who's been vaccinated, at least for, for the most serious outcomes. But like there's still a lot of missing pieces here that the Biden administration could have like, you know, gotten done here related to testing and masks and some other mitigation. Like how much is this their fault that this is not that we're not in better shape for a, a variant when we we knew that variants were a possibility? Yeah, I, I think there's a, a substantial amount of blame that I would put on them because the I feel like the Biden administration had this excellent 100-day plan. Like they really, really thought out how they were going to get from January 20th to for the 4th of July, and they assumed that nothing in the world would change. And they got really lucky that, for the most part, that was true, that very little changed, and they were able to really improve the situation and get things to look like they were back on track. But then the Delta variant came and things got pretty rough again. And the thing that I can't understand is at that point why there wasn't a pivot. Because to me, 
who, you know, smart, but not, not an epidemiologist, but like I listen to a lot of other smart people who are epidemiologists or, you know, people who are in public health. And like everyone was saying that one of the big mistakes that we made at the beginning of the pandemic was to not find cheap and wildly available tests that were really easy for people to get and would get people results quickly. And for some reason or another, that's just something that the Biden administration has never focused on. They did put more money into it, but not nearly enough because the way that you keep a pandemic, you know, a, a virus from spreading like wildfire over places is you have to be testing people a lot and you have to actually do something when you find that, you know, there's a outbreak and you have to temporarily shut down uh, that area if you don't want it to spread everywhere else. You know, it's very, very controversial, but I mean, that's, you know, what China did and it was very effective for them and other uh, countries around the world did this as well, where when there was these hotspot pockets, they would just shut that entire area down to the point where, you know, you're going out once or twice a week to get, you know, groceries and then the virus will go away <laughs> if you do that. But, uh, you know, we just haven't been willing to do that. And this is just a natural consequence of, of doing that because you don't, you don't catch these outbreaks until, you know, a bunch of people are in the hospital or everyone is calling out sick because everyone got the virus. And, you know, that's just not a way to, to run things. And this is just too big of a burden for any one state to handle at this point, you know, it requires federal leadership on these issues. And so, you know, again, while, I agree with Kemp positionally that it is better for the schools to be open than not. I also think there's more he could do, but I think there's a lot more that the Biden administration can can do as well because the way that I view this situation is that it is inevitable that we're going to have these issues because teachers have been asked to do a lot. And again, to Kemp's credit, he's trying to give them a pay raise and was trying to give them a pay raise even before all this crap happened with COVID and, you know, the struggles of virtual learning. Um, but, you know, I, I don't blame any teacher from being burned out in these situations. I don't blame the school systems to be burned out and all the administrators to be burned out and not really know what to do. And I'm amazed they're doing as well as they are because they're not really getting a lot of help because throwing money at principals and at schools to, you know, try to help them through the situation is better than not doing that. But what they really need is some guidance and some clear guidance on what to do in these situations. And I feel like that hasn't really come. And so, you know, when half of your teaching staff gets the Omicron variant and they're pretty sick, but not going to die, like they're still pretty sick. And so they're not going to be able to, to teach in that situation. And I feel like at this point we should have had a backup plan for when that inevitably happens and we don't. And so I think that's, again, why there's so much frustration because Republicans positioning is to go on TV and be mad and scream like, why aren't the schools open? And that's how I feel like most parents feel. Whereas Democrats are, you know, giving their, you know, very boring presentation about you know surges and the covid numbers today and blah 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 and it's like no it's like people are pissed off at this point and if you can't message 
with that in mind, then you're not going to reach people very effectively. How much do you think this potentially matters in November? I mean, I think the optimistic scenario as we sit today is that Omicron was a uniquely um, contagious variant, but we are lucky that it is a more milder variant in that it is not causing as severe of consequences for people. And at least as far as we know now, vaccines hold up reasonably well against some of the worst outcomes related to this variant. And I think there was hope as, as the Delta wave started to turn down that, you know, even though there are not enough people vaccinated there, you know, between vaccinations and, and people who've gotten COVID who are, uh, maybe immune or at least partially immune to to future variants, that we could be coming closer to the end of this and that as we get closer to the election, more people will have a stronger sense that we have returned to normal, even though COVID is something that we will continue to live with. And you then if if most people who are very frustrated today are in that kind of a position about their thinking, then what is left of the Republican message that is sowing a lot of frustration and distrust of your schools is around critical race theory. And I think that's an issue that has more limited appeal. But this period of instability and frustration has been so long, I wonder how much of this sticks and whether or not Republicans can capitalize on it in the midterms and, you know, whether or not I mean, my own view would be that, you know, even if they, they can be, even if they can capitalize on it, they have not been a responsible governing partner in any of this in a way that would suggest that they are the right party to hand the keys to after 2022. I think this is going to be a problem for Democrats nationwide more than it is in Georgia, but kind of thinking about Georgia specifically, I don't think that can... Unless something changes with how deadly Omicron or whatever the next variant is, because I think there probably will be another one. Um, you know, like I, I think I think the cost benefit analysis very clearly points towards it looking like closing the schools down and being in virtual learning was more harmful than helpful to the students involved. Now you can't run the counterfactual of what if you'd not shut down any schools and you just let, you know, everybody go as, as they were. But because we didn't do that, we were in a situation where very, very few children died, but every single child got a really, really crappy education for two years. And I don't think anyone wants any more of that. And so the Republicans, are doing a pretty good job, I think, of aggressively pursuing the, you know, these schools don't know what they're doing, they're teaching our kids crappily, and they aren't trustworthy. And I think that's going to get baked in unless Democrats find a way to message around that. Because while typically speaking, Democrats do really well when people ask, like, who you trust to handle education more effectively like democrats usually win that question and so i think they purposely fall into this argument uh for these reasons but i think that the critical race theory argument is effective because of these frustrations over how covid and schooling has been handled and 
I, I think that's going to, if it's not already baked in, it's going to get even more baked in going forward. Let's move on here to, to one other topic that also I think plays into how Democrats feel about how their party has governed over the last year and how they will govern uh, in the lead up to the midterms. And that is on the issue of voting rights. Now, I think it's worth recapping for people that voting rights is now the key federal issue for Democrats on Capitol Hill. Because over the holiday break, you probably saw the news that Joe Manchin effectively killed the previous version of the Build Back Better legislation that uh, had you know, investments to combat climate change, as well as investments in a lot of human services programs that were aimed at helping people recover from the pandemic and, and recover from all the ways in which they are kind of screwed over in this economy. That legislation has basically been put on hold until the spring until Joe Biden and Joe Manchin can come to some sort of an agreement. And so that I think creates a foundational level of Democrats being really frustrated about their inability to act when they've had a majority in uh, 2021. Now they are moving on, at least in the Senate, on to voting rights legislation. And it is still unclear whether or not Democrats will be able to act on that. Now, I I can't remember actually if these bills have already passed the House, but I don't think there's any concern about getting voting rights legislation out of the House. And there's not really any concern that Joe Biden does not back all of the ideas that Democrats are relatively unified on about election reforms that need to be put into place to protect the foundation of our democracy and to respond to the restrictions that have been put in place in Georgia and in other Republican-led states in this country. But Democrats are at the same problem with that legislation as they were with Build Back Better, which is that they need the support of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, and potentially some other moderates who may not be as vocal on these issues. They need their support to at least create some kind of carve-out in the Senate filibuster that would allow this legislation to pass in the face of unanimous Republican opposition. And it is not clear that they have secured a plan to actually get that done yet. And so it was notable now that uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris are coming to Atlanta on Tuesday to give a speech about voting rights and to try to rally their party around this proposal, that they were met with a relatively frosty welcome from voting rights groups in the state who wrote a public letter that basically said, if you don't come to Atlanta on Tuesday with a concrete plan with firm commitments to pass voting rights, then we don't want you here. And I was surprised at how how strong that pushback was, Luke, but I, I think it's clear that like frustrations among Democratic activists and among more progressive people in the Democratic Party are basically just ready to boil over about how poorly the legislative part of this governing has gone uh, in Biden's first year in office. I think this is emblematic of a problem that senators, former senators have, which is they always want to be, you know, president of the Senate and, and follow a process that 
make senators happy, which is long and deliberative and never goes anywhere. <laughs> this is the consequence of having six-year terms that you can be really, really thoughtful about things and just go on and on and on. And at a certain point, Joe Biden's just going to have to you know, lay the law down and just be like, this is what I'm doing. And you either get on board or you don't and be seen pushing this issue and others because this current approach is not working. And I think the problem that every politician runs into, but I think has been particularly difficult for the Biden administration is that everyone makes campaign promises and nobody expects you to achieve all of them because that's just insane. And like people are realistic. People will give you a break. But the thing you can't do is look like you're either blatantly breaking a lot of your promises, going against your promises, or just fumbling the ball constantly so that even if you are trying to work towards your stated objectives, you're not, you know, you're not, you're not making significant progress. And I think a great example of this is, you know, Obama's reelect in 2012, where, you know, Obama was as angry as anybody <laughs> that like he hadn't been more successful and that like they hadn't accomplished everything he wanted to do. Like that was a, I, I think a real strength of, his political style was that even though he was in charge of everything, he still was, you know, confident enough to express his own frustration and what he was able to pull off. And I think one problem Biden has had, especially in this period, is like where, you know, it, it's so weird to me because I feel like this is probably the private Joe Biden, but like, where's Joe Biden just being like, what the hell, man? <laughs> like, get this stuff done. Like, find a way to put a bill on my desk and let me sign it and make some progress on these issues. It's like, I don't care how you get there, but you got to do it. And I think part of the problem is there that... And, 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 you know, to Biden's credit, he was not the one messaging this way consistently. But a lot of people very high in the Democratic Party were messaging as if electing Joe Biden and electing a 50-50 Democratic Senate would result in things that it just literally could not result in. And voting rights is a big example of this. And I think the thing that needs to happen here is for probably Joe Biden is the only person who can do this is just have a like real talk session <laughs> with everyone about like what is possible and what he's going to push for and how he's going to approach this. And we have 50 votes. We could change the filibuster rules to do something on voter rights. And if Joe Biden wants the Senate to do that, then he should say that and he should be really clear on it and he should push for that. And push he has said that he supports it, but yeah, I think there's a question of how how forceful he has been. And I I think too, if if you don't mind if I interrupt you here, I think that like I think there's a lot of reasonable frustration because if you had President Bernie Sanders in this same predicament with 50 Democratic senators. And the, the key pivot point, the key person that needed to be flipped over was Joe Manchin. I think you would have a little more understanding that Bernie Sanders is probably not the best person to put in the room with Joe Manchin to, to put political pressure on a conservative Democratic senator from a Trump double digit state. But this is the thing that Joe Biden ran on, on his relationships with senators, on his 
ability to be kind of a representative of all of the different various wings and aspects of the Republic of the Democratic Party. And that if there was a a former well, really, if there was any candidate from the Democratic uh, presidential primary debate stage that you said would be the most able to get the last final votes from people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, it would have been Joe Biden. There was nobody else on that stage that was more qualified or had pitched a campaign more driven at the ability to do that than Joe Biden. And yet we are here, the Democrats were given an unlikely uh, chance to control the entire federal government. And Joe Biden is sort of the key person to get productive legislation across the finish line. And he's unable to deliver. And he has he has been unable to deliver on something that he focused most of the year on, which was build back better. And then he's been unable to do that on voting rights to date. And it's just not clear that that he's going to be able to do that. And so I, I, I think that that's where a lot of that frustration comes from is like, in some ways, I mean, obviously, I think Joe Biden would love to have more Democrats in Congress, so he didn't have to rely on, you know, getting the vote of every single one to get anything done. But there is no person more qualified to get Joe Manchin's vote than Joe Biden. And he's just unable to deliver. Yeah. And I, I think, again, this part of this is a frustration because things have not been moving for a long time in the Obama administration did not get as much done as people wanted, but a lot of this is just a failure of Democratic elites to communicate to voters what was actually possible, and Democratic activists pushing for unrealistic things, which, I mean, you know, be fair, is basically the job of an activist, and that's what they always are doing. And, and you know, so there's, you know, it, but it, it does create a mishmash because I think the real unique problem that democratic messaging has right now is the fact that we control everything and so it seems like we just can't get our crap together and that's always really toxic and bad for a party because you know obama had the benefit of having a republican house for most of his term so he could point and say look at them <laughs> they're the reason nothing's getting done whereas like now you have to point to joe manchin who has a d by his name and so it makes you seem a lot more incompetent because i think voters of all stripes give you know gave obama more slack because the fact that like john banger didn't want to do a deal with him like people like get that because like yeah john banger's a republican i understand he doesn't want to do a deal with him and even you know like for trump like he probably got some slack because like of course nancy pelosi like doesn't like him and isn't working with him but when you're joe biden and as you said kyle this is like the the negative side effect of him campaigning so much on this is that like people are not going to give Joe Biden much slack when he, you know, throws up his hands and says, I just can't get Joe Manchin on board. It's just like, you know, people just don't get why you can't. And, um, you know, and, uh, the Senate's arcane procedures either is not something that is very effective for people to point at because there's only two types of logical reactions to an argument like that, which is one, you, do not care and do not want to know anything about how this thing works and you're just frustrated someone's trying to explain it to you or you're someone that understands the senate rules enough to know that you could change them <laughs> and that's not you know just like so no one's satisfied by that 
Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of what was realistic and and not like, I think it is, it it is somewhat unrealistic that if if you have not found a way to get Joe Manchin to adopt these rule changes, then a lot of the things that Biden campaigned on in terms of in terms of policy priorities and a lot of the things that activists want to see done. You know, it is clear that that is that is the holdup that it it isn't really sort of a lack of commitment to those things by Biden. But I think it is also true that a a competent party, a competent unified governing party, in the face of climate catastrophe, in the face of backsliding in democracy, and in the face of a global pandemic, a competent party would have been and should have been able to overcome those procedural obstacles to actually act at a moment in our history that's this important. And so I I think that like the actual policy goals, the actual things that Democrats should be doing in Washington, I don't think are unrealistic. I think most of them meet the moment and and some of them, you know, maybe fall short of meeting the moment on so many of the, the major crises that we face as a country. I don't think doing those things is unrealistic, but I do think that if you, if you just, have no way to convince Joe Manchin to back these ideas, then like, then the fact that, that Cal, the history of the Senate is not, is, is failing to meet the moment. <laughs> I mean, that is, that is, there are, you know, bright shining moments where the Senate does the right thing, but those are the exceptions to the rule. That's why, you know, people write 800 page books about a single bill getting passed because of how ridiculously hard it was get, you know, it was to get the Senate to do anything. Yeah, but I mean, you know, and and that's had a cost. That's had a cost of of mounting crises that people got to get their shit together and and do something. Yeah, but they're probably not going to. <laughs> you know, that's the thing. Like, I feel like that's the thing that, and this goes back to one of my earlier comments about like Joe Biden and his team seeming to have a great a hundred day plan, but then nothing after that is like they they really don't seem to know how to operate in this you know this situation where the senate's not doing what it wants it to do which is again is what the senate always does and and so i i just don't i i'm confused as to why it seems like so many bets were made for this administration on the senate cooperating when the senate never cooperates with what anybody wants it to do i mean i think most of what needs to be done requires going through the Senate and passing legislation. You know, you're not going to dramatically impact climate change by doing rules out of the White House. You're not going to override state efforts to make it harder to vote by creating rules in the White House. Like, you have to pass laws. That's just the reality of the situation. I don't disagree with you, but I also think that there is more that could be done with executive action that would be effective, even if it's just for the messaging, um, because the messaging does move people in the right direction, I think. And there, there's lots the federal government can do. But I think the larger problem here, though, is, and this might be an intentional strategy, philosophic thing, I, I kind of think it is, which is Biden has had the benefit of seeing the last two presidents, arguably the last three presidents, that every time they opened their mouth about something, it became more polarized and made it a bigger fight. And so to some extent, Biden's great strength of like not feeling this need to be at the center of attention constantly 
uh, or not just being someone like Obama who naturally attracted attention even if he didn't want it. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just he he does not seem to be in control of the ship right now, and that's just a really bad place for a president to be um, because, you know, people will give you a lot of credit if they think you're trying and you're working, you're making some progress, but you're not there yet. People give you a lot less credit if they think you're just aloof and not in, in control of the situation. And with COVID, with Afghanistan, and now uh, build back better and voting rights, it just doesn't seem like Biden is in control of this thing. And I, I think they're going to have to work really hard to alter that perception because almost all these, that the, all the, the metrics that they told the public to judge them by are out of their control uh, in, almost entirely. And so on, on that front, I, I think they've they've set themselves up for a really, really tough situation. Let's wrap here. Something we didn't get to, but I, but I think is worth at least noting here at the end. Coming back to Georgia, coming back to the primary between Governor Kemp and, and former Senator Perdue, uh, David Perdue filed a lawsuit uh, this last week challenging the creation of leadership committees, which is a fundraising mechanism that allows uh, a small subset of state officials, including Governor Kemp, um, to set up fundraising committees that I think, Luke, you can add more detail here, but I think are effectively nearly unlimited uh, they fundraising are, they are vehicles. Unlimited. Yeah. Unlimited fundraising vehicles um, that gives them a, a big advantage as they fill their campaign coffers for, for election season. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about that lawsuit, you know, whether you think it's it's legitimate or not, because this is the second major lawsuit he's filed. The first one was sort of a, a recap of the greatest hits of all the election falsehoods. Um, but this one actually seemed to get a little bit of a different reception, even from some Democrats who uh, do not like these leadership committees and, and what they mean for uh, incumbents. Yeah, and I, I will you know just start my analysis of this with saying that I'm against these leadership committees too, at least for uh, the governor and lieutenant governor, I think there's a, a slightly better argument for them for the House and Senate minor, minority and majority leaders. But the it's just a fundamentally unfair advantage to incumbents because what the leader, leadership committees do is they give you the ability as the nominee of the Republican or Democratic Party, well, I guess really any party, for governor and lieutenant governor, the ability to start a leadership committee and raise unlimited funds and spend unlimited money. Uh, you still have to disclose your spending, but you know that doesn't really help. And so the situation we have now is that both David Perdue and Stacey Abrams are running for governor. Neither of them are their party's nominees, and they cannot have a leadership committee. Abrams will be able to have one once she becomes the Democratic nominee, assuming she does. And Perdue, if he won the nomination, he could start one. But right now, Brian Kemp, as the incumbent governor, is able to un raise unlimited money and spend unlimited money in the benefit of his election and his opponent can't do that because only Kemp is the incumbent governor. And so he's able to have one of these committees and Purdue can't. And I mean, that is just a really, really unfair 
advantage for him. And so unsurprisingly, uh, this lawsuit goes after this legislation for being unconstitutional for, you know, both First Amendment, but also equal protection reasons. And I, I, I mean, my first, I haven't dived into all the legal issues with this, but I, I would not be surprised if he's successful just because it is treating very similarly situated people very, very differently. Uh, and I, I can't think of a constitutional advantage that it gives uh, you know, for a, a rational, a rational basis for this policy for the state of, you know, promoting the incumbent, uh, so aggressively. So, yeah, I don't know. I think, I think this one has a lot more merit than, uh, Purdue's other lawsuit, which is complete, you know, to, to quote a great, a great legal mind, gobbledygook. <laughs> and the, the real interesting thing here is that, uh, you know, Purdue has asked for, uh, you know, to not get into legal specifics, he's basically asked for the the court to enjoy, you know, to to stop uh, Kemp from using <laughs> this this committee, and, and while the lawsuit progresses, and so I'll I'll be curious to see uh, if the court grants that request or not, um, because that will make a, a pretty big difference uh, both for Purdue and Abrams. So I, I'm very interested to see how how that plays out. All right. Well, that'll be uh, another thing to keep an eye on. It'll it'll certainly have interesting implications on that primary between Purdue and and Kemp. And you know, I, I think it's notable that you know this was kind of a, a little bit more of a serious lawsuit potentially. But Lord only knows uh, how many other lawsuits, either serious or frivolous, are going to come out of that campaign as he, I think, tries to stir up any any dirt that he can to try to yank that seat out of Brian Kemp's hands. Um, we will be back uh, again. I think we're going to get together a little more frequently now that legislative session is picking up and there's going to be a lot of news to come out of Atlanta as that session develops, including a lot of issues that we'll pay close attention to. Um, so we are we are happy to be back at it. I'm, I'm fired up and ready to go for yet another campaign cycle. I don't have we even stopped a campaign cycle in the last like six years, Luke. Like, it doesn't feel like it. It feels like it, it's, we're in the perpetual campaign and that used to be, you know, more of a joke, but now, now it's, it's real. Yeah. Very real now. So yeah, there's lots to look forward to. I think most importantly, what, what Luke and I are looking forward to most is hopefully a Georgia victory on Monday night. So go dogs. Let's finally end that curse and, and beat Alabama. Go dogs. Thanks for tuning into Peach Pod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.